everybody. This is episode 203. Oh, Barry, we are five episodes away from the big four-year anniversary. My man, can you even believe it? Jeff, the plans that we have got in effect between yourself, Lou, and myself with the big extravaganza of the four-year-old episode, can we reveal these plans now or do we have to sit on this information? It involves nudity. Yes. Uh, it, it involves uh, debauchery. Check. And you know, it, it involves uh, people unliking us. Maybe. <laughs> people can people... never unlike us, Jeff. <laughs> Who can, apparently, how that ever happen? People that used to be in this group. So, so uh, let, let me just break a little key as a fee on this one. I, as I reached out to my friend, Mr. Rose, this morning and told the story as, uh, uh, I'll say his name, uh, Brother Shipper Howard Brody. Uh, has this little thing that he does as an, on his own personal uh, Facebook page where he posts, like much like Benji does in our group, he'll post lyrics, and it's mainly songs from, you know, 60s and 70s, and he'll post, like, a, a couple, uh, you know, maybe a line from the song, and, and guess it, and he might do, like, TV theme songs or, or you know, Top 40 stuff. And so uh, this particular uh, time he did it the other day, I uh, entered a guess as to one of the songs. I said, oh, is is it this song? He says, oh, well, it was already guessed by Brother Shipper uh, so-and-so. And And I'm like looking and I'm scrolling down as, you know, and that's what he had had messaged me. And I I said, but but I don't see the guy post there. At which point I figured out that this particular individual who used to be a rather active member of our group has not only left the group, he has unfriended me, Barry. Wow, we apparently are really, really getting on people's nerves. Yeah, I like it too because you got two guys here that are in their late fifties, and we're talking about somebody unfriending them. Like, you know, let's be honest. <laughs> he unfriended me. Exactly. Like at the end of the day, you know, you unfriending, and I don't think I've been unfriended. I haven't checked, but. Uh, it, you know, you unfriending me doesn't uh, affect my my work related status or how I pay my bills. And at the end of the day, but Jeff, I you brought up that one. Wasn't there another instance of somebody, a famous wrestling celebrity, posting something on Twitter recently? Well, let's just say that apparently. Uh, a recent guest celebrity that we interviewed here on this fine podcast after their appearance here has decided they're never doing another episode. <laughs> not not only of this podcast, they're never doing another fucking podcast. So <laughs> things with Missy did not go well. I guess not, but they, you got to love that too, because it, there's so many ways to look at it on the, from the comical side. We have destroyed Missy for podcasts. Somehow we have this power that we could have her on, have what I would consider a very PG related conversation, maybe even G like there was nothing fair to say that there were areas of her life and career that we chose (laughs) not to touch upon. (laughs) And the irony is she touched upon a lot of those in her book. Yes. Up for some reason, Missy will never do another pot. Apparently, according to the tweet that you sent me, don't even ask because she won't even consider it. She is done with podcasts. On that note, right here, ladies and gentlemen, turn into Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry, the last ever podcast interview with Missy Hyatt. That's Sweet Lou chiming in. We didn't even mention Wrestling Vixens or Eddie Mansfield. Ooh. 
Sweet Lou with the uh, slightly below the crotch uh, shot there. Way to go, Sweet Lou. So on this particular episode, Breaking <laughs> Cape of the Bob and Barry, uh, number 123, we're going to be doing this week in CWF, of course. We're going to be doing, oh, Barry, we're going to talk a little AEW in what? the news. We are going to be talking about something, Barry, I think it's safe to say in four years we've never discussed. Oh. Today, the day we record, is the anniversary of Hurricane Andrew. Oh, yeah. Barry and I will be giving our thoughts on that and our match of the week. Now, let me ask you folks something. Y'all remember when we had that, in fact, Missy interview, and, oh, Lord Barron's, he threw a little curveball at your favorite host here. And, <laughs> he and Missy did a little rib on me. Yeah, he's so yeah, fun. That's what well, it was. Well, guess what? Et tu, Brute? Because... Barry now is finding out, along with the rest of you, because he didn't know this, we had planned on our match of the week being what I will say, Barry, uh, will you agree, a very good match from a 1986? I'd say uh, for the year 1986, that is about as good a match as you're going to get. I would be hard-pressed to think that there's going to be better matches in this country than the Andersons versus Rock and Roll Express. But guess what? I'm calling an audible. Because we're not doing that match this week, Barry Rose. What? Why? Oh, that's right. Because Barry Rose does not know that right before we began recording today, I had a chance to watch Volter oh. So we'll be discussing NXT. Yes, we're talking AEW, the most recent NXT. Barry, we are nothing if not current wrestling fans and we're going to be talking about that so are you going to think on your feet there mr rose or do you need to recollect yourself since we're going to be talking a little vaulter oh i think i'm uh i think i'm ready to go it's interesting too i was i have you got an erection i said uh, i i jeff i have had an erection a permanent erection since uh friday at about three o'clock in the afternoon when i Taking started getting hyped are you so, yeah, you know, that's not a bad idea, but it's funny. I got a message from brother shipper Michael Volgare uh, probably five minutes before we started recording. And he he said, hey, I wanted to get your opinion. What did you think of CM Punk, his return to professional wrestling this past Friday night? And what did you think of the Walter match? And, of course, I said, you're going to have to tune in for the next episode of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Uh, dropping around 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning to hear. But let's be honest, Jeff, I, this has been for a wrestling fan. And for somebody like me that hasn't watched a lot of wrestling the last few months, I got to tell you, I jumped in headfirst this Friday and I'm still not out of it. This has been an amazing weekend for pro wrestling. I have just had, I, it's almost like, uh, this was a high school sweetheart that somehow got away that I reconnected with because I, I have immediately fallen in love with professional wrestling again. I, uh, I had that same experience in real life, the high school sweetheart, and then uh, uh, reconnecting. It's <clears throat> kind of what cost me my second marriage. But uh, uh -oh. we'll get into that in further detail at another time, perhaps a Patreon uh, type of a level event there, Barry. So, Barry, why don't we start off? Before we get to the NXT thing, let's talk a little AEW. Oh, it's the CM Punk reappearance, reemergence in Chi-Town. Wow. Before, before we get into that, though, let me just say that I know, and Barry and I have discussed this uh, on the air and off the air, that there are people that 
uh, love WWE and fucking hate anything AEW. There are people that love AEW and they hate everything WWE. And Barry and I, I'm going to speak for you here, Barry. We just don't get it. Why do you not want there to be competition? Why do you not want you can shit on the Young Bucks. You can shit on Kenny Omega. You can shit on Tony Khan. You can shit on Alex Marvez. Yeah, my nephew didn't get those tickets, by the way. Alex, thanks for fucking nothing. Anyway, <laughs> another story for another time. Call AEWtickets.com. Uh, thanks, Alex. Um, what I was going to say was, you know, this is the kind of stuff that breeds good content, great matches, great thinking outside the box. If there's one fucking company, guess what? That leads to lazy booking, matches that are half-assed, programs that go nowhere. If AEW can just provide a scintilla of competition, and quite frankly, I think they're providing a lot more than that, but if they can provide just a scintilla of competition and making the hierarchy, whether it's Vince, Triple H, Stephanie, whoever, go we got to fucking step our game up a little bit here. We need to, to get something good. That's the kind of shit we want. So if you don't like AEW, fine. If you don't like WWE, fine. But don't shit on the fact that there are competitions out there. There are people, you know, if somebody going to AEW because they're getting a better spot on the roster than WWE, maybe that means WWE has to bring someone up that we may be talking about in this very issue uh, of breaking Cape Berry to the main roster. Maybe this kind of, it, it's stir, you know, stirring the pot is good for wrestling, Barry. What do you think? Stirring the pot is first off. Yes, Jeff, everything you just said, you'd be a hundred percent correct. Check. Stirring the pot is great for pro professional wrestling. And what we talked about, Jeff and I had a fairly long conversation a few hours earlier today. And it was really, I asked Jeff and I said to Jeff and asked him a question. I said, what was the thing that you remember, you know, when you were a kid going to the matches in the old territory days, what was the biggest thing that would stand out to you? And we were talking and it was the element of surprise. And for me, it was generally either a heel or a baby face turn. You know, in most cases, you couldn't you couldn't predict that was going to happen. Sometimes they would do something where, you know, like we talked about the Ernie Ladd turn, which went on for weeks. But in most cases, a lot of these turns were done overnight. And it was such a big deal because going to the matches, we knew we were going to get decent wrestling. We knew we were going to have fun and have a good time. But what was the surprise going to be? And a lot of times it was the turn. So. Uh, it, that was very exciting, uh, on every different level to me. Uh, but I will tell you this weekend for so many reasons was, was great. It was that I, I should say, so I started off, I, uh, since I, I have become, uh, single, I did not subscribe to a cable subscriber or a cable company. I basically have streamed everything and getting TNT has proven to be a monumentous challenge. And when I say that, just really fucking expensive. And the only way I can get it is with YouTube TV or Hulu Live, which is like an additional 50 or $60 per month. And look, I like AEW, but I don't like it that much, Jeff. I'm a cheap bastard. And uh, I didn't want to- Really? Get Wait a minute. Wrestling fans are cheap? <laughs> <laughs> 
wrestling fans, I can tell you, as anybody that has ever written a book, Jeff, you've written two, as <laughs> anybody, yeah, exactly, as anybody who has ever sold anything or ever done anything that money is tied into will say to you, wrestling fans have a reputation of being cheap. And I've heard that, boy, from a lot of people. But if, if look, myself included, I, I can't justify paying $60 just to watch AEW. So, uh, that being said, I jumped in about three o'clock on Friday and I started going through the AEW library of what I had missed the last few months in preparation for Friday night. So what should we talk about first, Jeff? Should we talk about Friday night? Rampage? Let's talk AEW and CM Punk. Okay. That was a legit holy shit moment. Now, Something also that you and I discussed earlier, it doesn't matter if you like punk, dislike punk, you know, if you like him, it's a million times better, obviously. But even if you're not a gigantic fan of CM Punk, what a big deal that was and what a holy shit moment that was. And I got to tell you, I sat here and I felt emotional. First off, I am a CM Punk fan. I don't care, you know, whatever brand me, uh, however you want to brand me, but CM Punk, what he did in the WWE, he gave uh, above average matches. Some would say he was giving the best matches in the company during his run. I, I don't think I could disagree with that. And secondly, he was kind of the guy that brought to the forefront. Uh, he brought the pipe bomb as we know it today to the forefront. We did talk about this, Jeff. Yes, ECW, Shane Douglas had done this 20, 25 years earlier, but when CM Punk did it at the end of a Raw show and sat in the middle of the ring and basically started shooting on John Cena and the WWE as a whole, that was a holy shit moment as well. Him coming out uh, on Friday night it was a holy shit moment. And you and I discussed it. We went through it. He's in Chicago. So that's a big deal. Obviously, he's a hometown boy. That's going to be a big deal. Uh, here's a guy that went out on his terms. He was a guy, if I remember the story correctly, he was in the Royal Rumble. And CM Punk's still a big deal at this time. You know, he had held the world title. And look, I, I, I get it. You know, somebody in the office dictates who the world champion is, but they had enough faith to give Punk the world title for over a year without taking him off. You know, and that that's a big deal in and of itself, because as you and I both know a lot of these world title reigns. They only last for a few months, and that really devalues a lot of the titles. We will be talking about Walter. Walter over 800 days, like two and a half years as champion. That is amazing. And that's, that's how you make a title actually mean something. So Punk coming out, I got to tell you, I, I think I stood up off my couch. I listened to every word. It was well done. But it doesn't matter. Punk could have come out and not said anything. Oh, people really picked apart the fact. And, and I look... I, Everybody's different when it comes to wrestling, you know, I'm not going to tell you I'm right and you're wrong or vice versa, but there were people picking apart his one comment that he made about not having a professional wrestling match since like 2005, I think he said. Yeah, and, there was some kind of reference to that. Yeah. Yeah. And there were a lot of people that were, you know, fuck you, punk. 
how dare you disrespect the undertaker? And you know, I'm like thinking to myself, really, are we really having this conversation? I, I don't, and I'm not speaking for punk cause I don't have, but my interpretation of that comment was he truly hated the WWE. He hated the politics of what occurred. He was not disrespecting anybody that he got into the ring with. Certainly not a guy like the undertaker. I don't think he was disrespecting end of the story for me, Jeff. It was well done. It was, I think it's one of those holy shit moments. Where were you? And and in 10 years, maybe we'll be talking about it, but I'm always going to remember where I was, what I was doing and how buzzed I was when CM Punk made his return this past Friday. How dare you include the fact you were buzzed? Maybe now you're, you're not clearly remembering the, uh, the interview or the promo, Barry. But anyway, I <laughs> told Barry, uh, and I am going to tell everyone here that I have mentioned on more than one occasion that my wrestling fandom slips in and out. And quite candidly, I did not know why CM Punk was a huge deal in the WWE I'm just going to let the fans gather their thoughts after that comment from me, because I know that this guy is a huge deal to wrestling fans. Certainly, apparently wrestling fans in Chicago, Barry, because holy shit, those people were losing their fucking mind. And quite candidly, when Barry and I spoke this morning, I said, so tell me, is this guy a big deal because he shit on the WWE or because he's a great wrestler or what was the reason that this guy was like, holy shit, it's CM Punk. And tell the folks what you told me, Barry. Why is CM Punk such a big deal? Well, it's a it's a combination of the stuff that you just said. It, it's not just one thing. It's that a guy walked out of the promotion, quit, uh, initiated a lawsuit because he felt that he had been forced to work injured. Uh, and the, obviously being in Chicago, he's a hometown boy. Uh, but there's a lot of factors that go into it. But I also think, I think, you know, first bringing him out in Chicago is it's a genius move, but it didn't take a genius to come up with that because I do feel that, uh, you know, if I was running a wrestling company and I'm no genius, Jeff, which you can attest to, uh, I would bring out punk in Chicago as well. I would make sure. I also think based off of that reaction, what we're seeing is that wherever punk goes at this stage he's going to be a big deal. It wasn't, you know, look, seven years, a long time in professional wrestling, Jeff, a lot of people, you know, you walk away. And as we know, the wrestling landscape and the audience can change, you know, within a year. Dramatically. Or two. So, Dramatic. Absolutely. A lot of people that were punk fans have phased out. And a lot of the fans that are current fans, they're not really sure who the CM Punk guy is. It's not going to matter wherever punk goes at this stage, he is going to be a big deal. The question for me above all else, what are the quality of matches going to be in taking off seven years? I know he's done MMA. You know, he, I'm sure he's training his wife, you know, was a professional wrestler for years. Uh, I get all that, but you know, seven years, a long time. And when you're having four star matches or what, what we perceive as four star matches, seven years, I don't know. I don't know what can happen. I'm excited though, Jeff. Well, let's take a look at this as we kind of bleed into our next topic, which is, AEW going forward. So my concern, you know, I've stated it before, is AEW going to become this home for misfit toys from the WWE, the guys that, you know, have a lot of talent or maybe some talent and, eh, it just didn't fit in, you know, because 
I'm kind of starting to get that impression. So this is where we're going to find out if Tony Khan is just a mark who's got a lot of money and thinks he can uh, do a wrestling promotion. Hey, kids, let's put on a show. Or if Tony Khan is a, a mark who has a lot of money, who knows what the fuck he's doing. Because now he's got a lot of talent in that promotion. Okay. And, you know, what are you going to do with all that talent? Because there's only so much. Yeah, you've got this extra show now on Friday night. You've got the YouTube stuff, but you got a lot of talent there. You got to find stuff for them to do. And is Tony Khan up to that, Barry? What do you think? We so Jeff, I think we talked about this yesterday or the day before, and I remember we need to start recording those phone calls, Mister. Exactly. <laughs> we we we've talked about this, but you know the whole show is really just based out of our our phone conversations. Maybe going a little bit longer, and maybe we're just a if little. If we want to make it more realistic, well, why don't we do this, Barry? So sure. so Barry, what do you think Tony Khan's going to do uh, going forward? Hey, asshole! It's a fucking green light. <laughs> why don't you guys make? realistic we could do it that way absolutely i i think the biggest problem tony look there's so much hate on tony khan and that also to me is mind-boggling this guy is putting forth uh, a good product he's doing everything he can to uh to bring an alternative to the boring wwe which for the most part is extremely boring aew is exciting it's vibrant uh, I get that there are some issues and I certainly, you know, we, we're going to address some of these issues. But at the end of the day, I love what Tony Khan has done and uh, I, I have no issue with it. The issue that they're going to face is how do you cram all this talent onto a TV show when you've got what do they have four hours per week now? Uh, Dynamite, Rampage and Dark, right? Yeah. So it's four hours per week, but they've got enough talent that you know, could probably, they wouldn't be able to squeeze everybody into an eight hour show. Uh, so a guy like Sean Spears, Jeff, let me, and you're familiar with Sean Spears, sure. right? Yeah. So I, I watched, uh, well, we're talking about the library. I went through the library and I watched the Sean Spears match against Chris Jericho. And, uh, it was a, it was a very good match, but Sean Spears was the first guy that comes to mind. And a lot of that is based off of when they, she, I think he was one of the first hires. I think he was in the initial, we have Sean Spears. He was a guy that had been in NXT for years. Uh, he was a guy that was super, super over. And I couldn't figure out why they were letting him go from the W. Regardless of the quality of his matches, this guy was over. He would come out and uh, it, the fans would start to go nuts. And he he was really connecting with the crowd. He's been in AEW now for, it's almost two years, I think, and really is almost an afterthought. And uh, he pops up every now and then. He looks good. Matches are good. He's still got that mohawk, still with Tully Blanchard. But he's not. He's never in any continuing program. Uh, so he's a guy. I, I think the biggest challenge AEW is going to have, and I know they're doing a lot of live events now and guys are going to get their shot, is how to keep all the talent happy and not become frustrated when they're not really being used too much. Yeah. And that's, that's obviously, uh, and what, especially what's going to happen when you have these guys coming down from the WWE, uh, that are looking for a spot, what's going to happen with those guys, the young, uh, talented guys that, you know, you can see they've got potential, but they're not quite there yet. And then the WWE comes in, or the guys come in and they kind of push them down a spot to where 
Is there going to be some sort of glass ceiling? I know they don't want to say, you know, oh, there's this glass. They don't want it to be that way. But we all know that, you know, guys hold on to their territorial guys back in the day. They would hold on to their spots like grim fucking death. Now you're a national company. Do you think guys are going to give up their spot that fucking easy? Easily? Hell no. And that's one of the things I worry about. And I'll tell you, the other day when Barry and I spoke, one of the things that I said that I worry about, I've said it before, I'm not a huge fan of this guy, at least in his present role. Oh, Barry, what happens if the forthcoming Cody and Brandy TV show, which, by the way, poor bleach in my eyes, if I ever even make a move to watch (laughs) that show, what yeah. if that show, as it should, shit the bed and and it's done, and now Cody comes back and wants to be the number one guy again? No, no, don't let that fucking happen. There are a lot of things that is that is good about Cody, uh, about the way he handles things, maybe from an executive point of view, but as a wrestler and especially as a babyface, Cody is a mid-level guy. He was in the WWE, and in my mind, he is in AEW now because he's not as good as some of the guys that have brought, been brought in. Oh, he's not even, Jeff, he's not even in the same stratosphere as some of the guys that they brought in. And look, with Cody, too, Cody was being booked, I feel, at one point, you know, you remember that stuff with uh, MJF and the uh, amount of abuse that Cody was taking at that point, self-afflicted a lot of it, obviously, but Cody is a... Uh, Cody's a talent if used properly. The question is, does Cody, does Cody's lineage, uh, does it, does it, does it overrule the common sense of his executive vice president status? And what I mean by that is we all know Dusty and what Dusty did for years. Will Cody be able to see past that and say, you know what? These guys are a lot better than me. My ego fuck it. I'm making a million dollars with my salary being the vice, the vice president. Why can't I enjoy that? Why, why can't, and then can be used correctly, which is sparingly Jeff, to your point. Uh, he should be used sparingly. I I do think, I, I think it'll be interesting. I think if we never see Brandy again, that would be smart because Brandy added nothing to the show. And I don't look, this is not a knock on Brandy either. She might be the greatest person on the face of the earth, but as a fan, Brandy wasn't adding too much. Beautiful though. Beautiful woman. And, uh, but as a wrestler and, and manager or whatever else she was doing, nothing was happening with that. I, I think Cody, I, I think you make a good point. Cody is a heel is a lot more effective. He's sneaky. Uh, and I think he can get over a lot more. And I think that'll come at some point. I, that would make sense to me, but, uh, look, Adam Cole, Adam Cole is the talk of, uh, of wrestling right now. And the fact that he is probably bound for AEW. So, you know, and then there's the talk of Daniel Bryan, that Daniel Bryan is signed, sealed and delivered. Again, you're adding two main event guys to this roster, which then, as you mentioned, is going to push everybody down. And John Moxley was the guy that I brought up because if you've got, you know, Daniel Bryan, CM Punk and Adam Cole coming into your promotion you know, Moxley is being moved down the ladder. He would have to be. I don't, you know, and a guy like Eddie Kingston, uh, I would think, you know, 
almost becomes expendable to some degree also. So, uh, you know, I like AEW. One thing I caught up this past week also, Garcia in 2.0, the featured performers on shows, and these guys are, you know, when CM Punk and Daniel Bryan show up on your TV, you're looking for ratings. Where do you go, Jeff? You're going to go with CM Punk and Daniel Bryan, right? Yeah, and, and you know, the problem is... <sighs> You have guys, and, and this is where I'm talking about Tony Khan going forward, having the problem is you have so many guys. Uh, Barry, tell me the last time that uh, Adam Page was on the show. It's been two or three weeks, right? At and least, this yeah. is the This is the guy that they had started to focus on as the guy that was going to be Omega's main challenger. They were going to do that whole program. They kind of teased it. And then it's like, yeah, hold on a second. We got something else we're doing. And they've kind of forgot about that. And that's not the first time. And he's not the only example of them doing that. I remember asking Barry uh, a while back, hey, when's the last time Vicky Guerrero w- was on the show? And, you know, like because they bought, oh, here's Vicky Guerrero and she's here now. And uh, then she kind of disappeared. And we didn't see her for at least a month, if not longer. And then, uh, it was, oh, there's Vicky Guerrero. She's back. And she was there for two weeks in a row and then you haven't seen Vicky Guerrero for a while. And that's the problem when you have so many people they need to set some sort of, uh, I don't know, like, uh, establish some sort of, you know, thing. I can't even think of the word I'm I'm looking for here where you have people make appearances where they're not just, Hey, what the fuck happened to that guy? That shouldn't be happening to Adam page. Okay. and, and Jeff, you're bringing this. This is exactly what we're talking about is Vicky Guerrero is a great example of somebody that uh, you could probably get behind on, you know, because, again, she was in the WWE for years. You could get behind the Vicky Guerrero character. But how do you get behind the character when you're only on TV once a month? Yeah. And, that, and Nyla exactly. Rose. Yeah. Nyla Rose is another great example. Here's somebody that was featured prominently and then disappears and then is brought back for a week. And then we don't see her for a couple of weeks. And then we see her a month later. Great. She's still with the company. It's wonderful to know that. But if we're not, we're not on the train, if we're not following this path of, you know, seeing these people regularly, what's happening to them. And there are people quite frankly, that, you know, probably could use a week off, you know, I mean, if you're pushing Kenny Omega and, you know, Barry and I talked about this too. There's so much hate for Kenny Omega and the young bucks uh, and those guys, you could take them off TV for a week. Just give the people a break from, and I know they're heels and stuff like that, but you know, there's other heel factions that you could put on TV and give those guys a week off the cameras so that, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder and seeing, you know, somebody, Every single week after a while, it's kind of like, yeah, this is good, but uh, I'm getting a little tired of their act. And, uh, you know, and, and Don Callis is really effective in his role as as just the jerk asshole. OK, a big shout out to Oli with the uh, the look there uh, is is really effective as the asshole world champion. Barry, quite frankly, is more of a fan of what the Young Bucks are doing. than I am. I'm not a, as much a fan of what they're doing. You know, FTR, I, I really like the shit they're doing, but you, you got to like give them a fucking break off TV, a week, you know, once in a week and uh, or so. Then bring them back and it's like, oh, yeah, we were out in uh, Acapulco last week because we're such big stars that we took a week. I do something fucking like that. It's not that difficult. But what I really wonder is, is Tony Khan at this point after two close to two years, Barry, 
is this guy going to burn out? You know, is, yeah, is he, he going to just think. like at one point go, I, I need some fucking time away from this thing, you know? Oh, you would absolutely think too, because you got to remember too, he started a wrestling promotion and three months later, we were in the first pandemic of our lifetimes that none of us knew how to, how to work. None of us knew what was going to happen. You know, it was a pandemic. There, there's no rule book for that. So the guy starts a company and immediately is, gets the biggest bitch slap ever across the face. So uh, he's got to be. And that's one thing, as you say that, Jeff, if you look at him, he does look a little tired. He looks a little beaten down, but I'll give him credit because that means he's working and he's trying to get this done and build a company the way that he thinks the company's going to be solvent. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'll tell you, Sant as you're talking, Santana and Ortiz are the two guys that immediately came to mind where, uh, you know, if they're not with Jericho, and I guess at this point they're not with Jericho any longer. It's a little unclear how all that is, but uh, these were guys that you weren't seeing on TV that much. And uh, and they bring them back. And now they're in this great program with FTR. There's so much good on Dynamite. And again, I must have watched eight of the last eight episodes. You know what I really popped for, Jeff? Sammy Guevara's uh, 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 proposal. <laughs> I took a shot. I don't know. That was good. So that was that was interesting. And I got to say it, that definitely showed a different side to Sammy. What I liked about his fiance is she looks really normal, and yes. I love that she's not she's a not stripper. A, yeah, she's not a stripper or penthouse model. Yeah. This is a girl that it looks like they probably went to school together. She's a nice, but there's also Sim, and yeah. I, you know, this wasn't like an actress. This this is like a real relationship. I did like that. So a couple of months back, I had on online that Tony Khan was purchasing the rights to the song Tarzan Boy by the the band Baltimore. And I said, really? I said, is that really going to do anything? Is that, you know, how much are you going to? And I, I, I fell into that Tony Khan is a, is a smart mark. You know, why would he waste his money on that? Well, I'm 100% wrong, Jeff, because the first time when I saw uh, Lucha Express come out to Tarzan Boy and how the crowd reacts, I realized why he did it. Because I got to tell you, I fucking, again, jumped out of my seat and I'm like, holy shit. It's a great song. It's a great song that's 35 years old. And But the crowd reaction to it, the crowd reaction singing to every word, to waving their arms in the air. It's much like uh, whenever Chris Jericho comes out to Judas. This, this is... That to me is what being a wrestling fan is all about. It isn't about five-star matches. It's not about, uh, I have to know how much everybody's making or anything like that. It's literally the pop when something happens in, in professional wrestling. And even as something as, you know, when I watched the last match, Jericho versus MJF, and one of the stipulations was Jericho couldn't play his music didn't matter because the crowd sang it. That was so fucking awesome. Yeah, that was a very cool moment. And I and you could see that that Jericho absolutely that had a very visceral response to it. And you know, they they do the same thing for Moxley coming out to Wild Thing. You know, yes. that that's you know, that's a that's a big deal. And you know, it's funny you just brought up MJF and here we've been talking about AEW now for good, you know, over 10 minutes and we haven't even brought up MJF and you wonder, you know, uh I know that Ric Flair apparently tweeted out something that he was he was proud of what Jericho had done uh, 
for uh, for MJF and doing the right quote the right thing for the business uh, going forward. Uh, you wonder what Jericho's role, uh, whether it's going to be reduced in the ring and become more of a behind the scenes or like on camera as an announcer or something like that, which I think he does a very good job at that. But, you know, we've discussed uh, uh, Jericho's uh, physique as it slowly begins to make its way south, uh, yeah. you know, that uh, maybe it's time for him to start thinking of other things. But that being said, he does the job for MJF. Where does MJF go from here? Because this is a guy as they start bringing in these new names in the in the company this is a guy i think they have to keep this guy in front you know in front of the camera in the ring because this is a guy that they could use to build the company around there he needs a main event program and uh you know he's transitioning essentially off of one i don't see him as a contender for omega because i think they're both such solid heels at the moment so possibly moxley because they've got to rearrange moxley he can't be, you know, it, now it's got to be Christian Cage, uh, you know, at least temporarily for Kenny Omega. But I think John Moxley would probably be the right. And I think Wardlow could play into that. But MJF is like a gift. You know, he literally he's one of these guys that only comes around every few years that just seems to get it, that just seems to have it. And it's less about his wrestling. And he's a good wrestler. That's not it. But it, it's what he can do, and it's understanding the crowd reactions. And if you watch him, he's got a couple of moves. And one of his moves is uh, when he comes out, he's almost always smiling at first. Then it turns into a frown. And then he looks at the crowd and says, shut your mouths. And it's like clockwork every single time because, of course, people then flip out on him. So I think MJF, I, I, we've been saying this for a couple of years, I, he's – you know, MJF has got a career in professional wrestling, I think, as long as he wants at this stage. You know, it's funny you you just use that exact example, because last night my wife and I were talking uh, about somebody. I'll just say that you and I both know uh, and that someone at ringside that had uh, an inability to get heat. Uh, do you know that particular individual that I'm discussing with you now that we mentioned today? Uh, give me a hint. Uh, hmm. You're asking my brain to work, so it's... Yeah, well, uh, there you go. So let's just put it this way. This particular individual uh, worked ringside in a managerial role, but didn't understand oh, yeah, 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 the concept yeah, yeah. of getting heat at ringside, okay? Got it. At least okay. not from what I saw. And he kind of just stood there, and I was telling my wife about it, and I said, you know, I said, here's what you do as a manager at ringside, Okay. All you do is you stand at ringside, you turn around, you look at a, a part of the crowd, and you go, shut your mouth. And I go, and guess what? The crowd's going to react to you. That's not extremely difficult. I've never worked one single day for a wrestling promotion. And if I get that, how come this guy doesn't? <laughs> I never could figure out why this guy just, you know, just looking and, you know, threaten somebody or, or yeah, I ought to. You know, we talked about Jimmy Hart at ringside last week and how fucking electric he was just working that television studio. Nobody's asking you to be Jimmy Hart in Memphis. Nobody's asking you to be Cornette and Mid-South uh, or, or, or Gary Hart or Humperdinck. But don't just stand there. It, it, that's what this particular person did. And I don't want to go any further than that. But <laughs> the other guy, the other guy that I want to talk about, and then we'll wrap up the AEW discussion at least. Sure. Is... So they bring in CM Punk 
And the first guy that he appears to be uh, scheduled to work with is Darby Allen. Number one, do you think that was the right choice for Punk to work with? And, and maybe he asked to work with him. I don't know. But was that the right choice? And what do you think future for Darby Allen is with the company? I think Darby Allen, I mean, it's obvious what Darby Allen's future is. He's basically the babyface MJF. I think these they look at MJF and Darby Allen as the future of professional wrestling. And Darby Allen, whether you love him or hate him, I know he's got a lot of haters out there. Uh, and I like the guy personally, I, you know, as far as being a professional wrestling, the way that they've paired him with sting is first off, that's very smart. And secondly, uh, I have to give Darby a lot of credit in that regard as well, because it, it's almost, he, he definitely comes across as sting's protege and it, you know, occasionally he'll look at sting and sting will do like a slight head nod. It's almost like he is truly learning more than just the, the aspect of what we see in front of the camera, it does appear like it's legit. I think Darby is going to be a gigantic star, uh, you know, for years to come. I don't see any sort of change with that. Was it the right call or was it the wrong call? When I first heard it, I think like a lot of people, I said, this is why Darby Allen? Why? There's, you know, there's a million other people you could put it with. I think there's going to be more to this than we're aware. And whether it's, Darby Allen versus CM Punk, and then there's some sort of beatdown on CM Punk, and Darby Allen makes the save, or vice versa. You know, maybe it's Taz and his guys jump Darby Allen. I don't know. And then CM Punk is in a feud with, say, Ricky Starks, which I think would be genius. I think there's going to be more to it. I don't just think this thing with Darby Allen was. I I, I can't see Punk coming back after seven years, and he's a guy that's always been very vocal and critical of who he works with him coming back and saying, you know, you're fucking putting me with Darby Allen. It doesn't make any sense. There's gotta be a reason for it. So the last guy that I'm going to bring up that we haven't mentioned yet, we're talking about guys whose spot on the roster could now be effective. What does this do with our old friend, orange Cassidy bear? Ah, so here's the thing with Orange Cassidy. I'm not a fan. I don't love the gimmick. We, we have a listener who is his biggest fan, though. Who's that? <clears throat> well, remember that the guest we had, uh, Jack Briscoe, Orange Cassidy. Uh, uh, oh. like the same thing. <laughs> I do remember that. Yes, I do remember that. That's been a little while. Good memory with that. But here's the thing. If Orange Cassidy is selling tickets, if Orange Cassidy is selling merchandise, that's all that should matter at this point. And uh, while I'm not a gigantic, I have seen him wrestle, though, when he's not doing Orange Cassidy. He's actually really good. So the Orange Cassidy thing is a straight, straight gimmick. I don't love it. That being said, if it's uh, making money and drawing more power to them, I would imagine at some point Orange Cassidy has to turn heel, Jeff. You know, and again, I'm not a huge fan of the gimmick. You know, I think that's pretty obvious if you've ever listened to the show. But, Barry, you are 100% correct. Check. You missed Ooh. your cue there, Barry. Um, but if, if he's selling T-shirts, if he's selling merchandise, if he's somebody that the crowd is reacting to and wants to see, you got to find a spot for him, Barry. You do. And it's uh, again, it's, you know, there's so many factors. It was like somebody was explaining to me the whole deal with the W, you know, right now the, the mantra appears to be WWE is finished. 
AEW is going to take over and it'll never happen, (laughs) but it can't it it, logically the reasoning being they might draw a higher rating on this or this what they've done with their merchandise and more importantly what they do worldwide, which is the key to all of this AEW, it's going to take 10 to 20 years to even try to even come even close to it. And we're talking about countries like India and the Middle East, et cetera. So, uh, it, you know, it, they may take over. They may win a ratings war. I, I can't, you know, at this stage, I don't know if that can happen. I'm not talking against NXT. I'm talking Raw or SmackDown. And SmackDown, how you're going to, you know, compare Fox versus TNT, it's not going to happen. But uh, I think AEW is primed to grab new viewership in this country in a big way. And that is, that's the foundation right there for everything else they're going to do in the future. I think, I think the big demarcation line, if you will, is because I don't think Vince McMahon will ever walk away from the business financially. He's more than capable of doing that, but he won't because it's just, it's in his blood. So let's just uh, not meaning to be morbid, but when Vince dies, I don't even think that's the demarcation line because he certainly set up the line of succession uh, in his company. To me, the demarcation line will be, will Triple H and Stephanie and whoever else want to keep going forward or will they sell to undoubtedly something like Disney or you know, some other big corporation, because it's not like, you know, uh, you're going to find another Tony Khan out there willing to put down all the money for the WWE. You know, uh, there's just not that many individuals like that, that grew up wrestling fans and, and, you know, read the wrestling observer for 30 years. So have some sort of idea of how their business works. Those guys aren't out there. So what's going to happen is you're going to have like Jim Crockett promotions being bought by TBS and, you know, Ted Turner and then turning into WCW and yada, yada, yada. I think that's what I could see, you know, potentially happening to the WWE is when Vince dies and, you know, some maybe a little bit of time goes by and Triple H and Stephanie are like, you know, uh, do we really want to keep doing this or do we want to just kind of enjoy the rest of our lives? Uh, and then they sell to some major corporation. What do you think of that, Bear? Yeah, it's. I'm, I think that day is going to happen. Here's something that I don't understand that maybe you can explain to me. So WWE is a publicly traded company. Uh, as with any any public, you know, publicly traded company, they're always going to have shareholders. You're going to have a chairman of the board, et cetera. But how is it that uh, Vince McMahon can do can have certain missteps? And when I say Vince McMahon, I'm just talking about the brain trust of the company. How can they have certain missteps and how is it that the uh, either the board or shareholders aren't calling for their heads? Well, I think when you become a publicly uh, traded company, I certainly think that becomes more of a uh, of a potential problem for the uh, CEO, CFO, whatever, uh, you know, but. My understanding is. If it's not Vince, let's just say, for example, the McMahon family, uh, that you know, the Vince and Triple H, Stephanie and Linda, that little uh, uh, quartet there of power, if you will, because I've always understood that Shane is not part of that. Um, they're not going to give up to where they have less than 50 percent of the company. 
uh, unless they want to sell it because absolutely what you just this the you know example you just gave could absolutely happen and then that's how they find themselves slowly squeezed out and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you went oh Oh, Vince McMahon's no longer the CFO or CEO of the Titan Sports and the WWE. Yeah, they're not called Titan Sports anymore. What am I talking about? But, you know, like, uh, you know, now uh, uh, Bob Smith, uh, who is uh, some sort of executive with some financial institution, is now in charge of the WWE. That's what's going to happen one day if they ever give up more than 50% control of the company. That's why I don't think that's going to happen until after Vince dies. And so when that happens... I think they're going to start looking for some sort of, and I'm just using Disney as an example, you know, uh, because they kind of Disneyfied the whole company to begin with anyway. And that's where that's going to come into play in some giant corporation, which is going to be, by the way, especially ironic that Vince McMahon, the guy who uh, made the NWA and, uh, you know, uh, WCW become a corporate entity and, Trust me, there is nothing more fucked up than a company, uh, uh, you know, being run by some major corporation. Uh, it, like, like you get uh, whether it's WCW and and how much the the people, uh, you know, the corporate heads fuck that promotion up. And then you know you think about you know as a Cubs fan, wow, when the Tribune Company bought you know the the Cubs, uh, as bad as the Cubs may have been when the Wrigley owned it, when the Tribune Company owned that company, holy shit, there was. Because you, you've got five people that can't make a fucking decision, and I'm just using an example, and now all of a sudden, you know, you, you've got uh, the WWE where they're used to either Vince or Triple H or Stephanie or whoever making a decision, and now it's like, well, let's call in the 20 guys here. What do we want to do? And it's like they spend, you know, fucking six months trying to make a decision on who gets the, you know, the front parking spot. And, you know, now you're asking them to make a decision on what's going to be the pay-per-view next month. And that's going to be a whole, wow, Barry, what a shit stain that's going to be. Oh, that boy, is that going to be a shit stain? And that, that there's the funny thing is bad as things are now and have been for the last 30, 35 years. And we've complained about Vince. Waitle Vince is no longer. And as you just said, Bob Smith from like General Electric is running the company. Uh, yeah, you want to, you want to hear complaints? Wait till then. But I agree with you, Jeff. You're yeah, right. If you're like younger than 30, ask somebody about Jim Hurd. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's, that's all I'm about say. Jim Hurd. Sure. And, and, uh, yeah. Let, let's make, uh, let's make John Cena Spartacus or, uh, something like that. So, all right, Barry, now let's go forward, uh, continuing with our, uh, look at today's wrestling, Barry. Oh, Barry, this weekend's the past weekend, NXT and in the middle of the card. We had Walter versus Ilya Dragunov. Barry, tell the good folks what you thought about this. I already know, but tell the folks what you thought about this match. It's I, I honestly think that we have witnessed one of the great matches in the annals in the history of professional wrestling. Walter versus uh, Dragunov, yes. I believe is how, yeah easily one of the best I'm 50 years watching as of this year in, in next month in September is my 50th anniversary of watching live professional wrestling. I believe that is one of the greatest matches I have ever seen. And I'm not just saying, uh, you know, I'm not being smug or smarmy as I was watching it, as I was watching the level that these two were, were putting out first off, I at times thought it was a shoot. There were Jeff, you saw it and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but 
Dragunov laying some of these forearm elbow shots to the back of Walter's neck. Uh, these were these were legit shots. These weren't uh, pulled in any form. And when Walter and spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen it, you want to lower the volume on count of three, one, two, three. When Walter was in the sleeper and tapped, he literally tapped in a second. And you can look at that sleeper and fucking Dragunov was ripping his head off. I at times thought I was seeing a shoot. Conventional wisdom, Jeff, will tell me what I was seeing was not a shoot. So even this 50, 50 year fan bought into it. I completely believed what I was seeing. I was blown away at the level of what this match is. I have watched it twice. Odds are tonight, uh, maybe an hour into Raw, I'll be flipping back over and watching this match again. I cannot, words will never do justice, Jeff what this match was. And do you remember the first one? We did talk about the first one too. Oh yeah. No, I mean, one, I, I have said of all the guys currently wrestling today, AEW, yes. WWE, whatever promotion, Walter's the guy that creates the most interest to me uh, as, as a longtime fan, you know, this is cause he's, he's different. How could know? he not? I mean, my yeah. God, how could he not? How could he not create interest for anybody watching that match? And, and I, you know, I, I know that we're in a controlled environment. They were in the Capitol Center, if I'm correct, uh, last night for NXT. And I realize it's a smaller group, but these people were heavily into Walter and, and Dragunov. And there's been very little buildup, you know, for these two guys, at least in this country. You know, they, they really haven't been. Uh, Walter is, and I, I don't want to forget Dragunov because I know Walter was getting most of the praise today, but what this kid did last night, Jeff, his chest and his neck, I mean, I, you know, that area between your shoulder blades going up to your neck, I don't know what the, where the collarbone is completely bruised up. And he had it, these weren't the normal bruising you know, Ilya didn't have this normal chest bruising that you get with chops. These were these look like legitimate blood clots that had formed. I, uh, I these guys are nuts. I don't you know, I just there's there's no other way to describe that match as far as maybe being the stiffest match I have ever seen. And obviously the conversation beforehand between these two were like, you just got to lay them in. You just got to do it. But some of those shots, Jeff, especially the ones to the back of the head, I just, I don't think I'd ever seen. The clotheslines that that Dragunov took where he did the 360, and that wasn't like an old, uh, you know, Jerry Lynn type of clothesline where, you know, you helped him flip over or something. This He was fucking, that, I've never seen anything ever like that, Jeff. I was blown away. Words will never describe if you have not seen this match in the last four years that we've been talking where we said you should go out of your way to see this match. This is the one match that you need to go out of your way and see. I believe, Jeff, truly one of the greatest professional wrestling matches in the history of this business. So. As I watched this match right before, uh, and you know what had happened was Barry had told me, wow, you got to see this match. It's just incredible. Uh, Barry told me that he goes, I know it wasn't, but I swear there were times when I thought it was a shoot. Uh, 
And again, Barry's been watching wrestling for 50 years. And when he loses the suspension of disbelief, that that's really saying something. And as I watched the match, uh, probably an hour, an hour and a half ago now, uh, the first thing that came to my mind, Barry, is these two guys were walking down the King's Road because this oh. is the kind of shit that Giant Baba wanted his guys to do, uh, that Masawa, Kawada, Tawi, and Kobashi. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that they did, uh, you know, Hanson, Gordy Williams. Uh, the unfortunate part of that is, you know, think about the guys that I just mentioned and how many of them aren't with us anymore. You know, yep. the, the toll that it takes on the human body, uh, to see what these guys were doing. And, and this was every bit like a Masawa Kobashi match or a Masawa Kawada match. These guys were beating the living fuck out of one another. And you're right. Uh, Dragunov's chest uh, was, uh, it brought back uh, images of Flair and Ronnie Garvin. Uh, what was that? Like 87 and the, and you know, Flair and Wahoo McDaniel, uh, Wahoo and Johnny Valentine. Uh, that's the kind of shit that it reminded me of the guys just beating the stew out of one another. And they're, there are moments in this match when you literally have to go, oh, like, like, because it just, it's not like that it looks realistic. Uh, it is realistic. And, you know, like, uh, I think Dragunov is sitting on the ropes and Walter comes over and chops him off the ropes and he falls down oh. to the floor and you just go, holy shit. And yep. it, it's just painful to watch. And, you know, the thing that I, the thing that I uh, thought of as I was watching this was, what the hell are the two guys that are following this match? <laughs> you know, like they're sitting back there going, what the they fuck are we going to do now? Oh, you know, fuck Jeff. Yeah. We are either going to saw yeah. our heads off or we're going to go out there and die in the ring because we're not topping this match that, Hey, by the way, they put in the middle of the fucking card. Thank you so much. You Did know, you watch those next two matches. I have not had a chance yet. Uh, you know, and, so, and let me say clearly, if this match had not been not not had taken place, we probably would have been talking about the next match uh, instead, which was Adam Cole versus Kyle O'Reilly, which was an amazing match. Two out of three falls. Fantastic. But how do you follow what you, what we just saw, you know, with Ilya versus Walter? You can't. Uh, so that that was a mistake. And then the main event, while the main event was good. Again, we're deflated. You can't put on Walter versus Dragunov and expect anybody could follow that on any level. That was a mistake. They should have done the best thing, Jeff, do the old lights out gimmick. We're going to we'll put the title match on and then we'll do a lights out match and let Dragunov and Walter finish and, and close out the show. But they didn't do that. You know, I, I've seen uh, examples before of when guys have just a. Uh, a humdinger. Uh, first time we've used the word humdinger on this broadcast. Humdinger. Uh, Listen to of that. Of a match, and they go to the back, and the guys in the back are just applauding them. You know, like holy shit, guys, what a fuck! And by God, if the boys in the NXT locker room were not applauding Walter and Dragonoff when they came backstage, shame on you for for not watching this and seeing. And you know, it's funny because uh, you know people rip on certain aspects of AEW, you know, uh, and myself included, like it's interesting that the business and the sport uh, uh, of pro wrestling that you can have somebody like the young bucks, uh, uh, Ray Phoenix, uh, somebody like that 
And in the same business, you have Walter and Dragunov. You know, it just it doesn't seem possible that those guys are in the same business, but they are. And that's one reason why at the very top of the show that I said, you know, enjoy both products, because number one, you give people people get jobs. Uh, they, they learn their craft and they learn how to work and they work different styles. Guess what? I know there's somebody out there right now going. I fucking wish the young bucks would face a, a Walter one day, you know, uh, chances are really good. That's not going to happen by the way, but you know, you can appreciate, I, you know, when I was a fan, I could watch, you know, Masawa and Kawada and Jumbo and, and Masawa. And then we turn around and watch the rock and roll express versus the midnight express. And guess what? They're working two completely different styles. And I enjoyed it because I'm a wrestling fan. And, you know, part of it, you know, I enjoyed watching CWF when it was Jack Briscoe versus Dory Funk. But then I watched, you know, Jerry Lawler versus Bill Dundee back in the day. And guess what? It's two completely fucking different matches. Learn to enjoy the fact that there are different kinds of styles in the wrestling business. I love it. Jeff, are you hitting the desk in front of you as you say this? I'm getting emotional. (laughs) I love it. This is what we're going to do. And you, if you're not, I love that, Jeff. That's the passion right there. But here's the crazy part. This past weekend was arguably, I don't remember the last time. It's been a few years at least. Did you just say member? I don't remember. I might have said that. I don't. Did I just. You're a professional broadcaster, by God. Sherman and Peabody, right? Award winning. But this is the last time, this is the first time I remember in years being so excited to be a wrestling fan again. And it was probably the last time I got nearly as excited to be a wrestling fan. I'm sure NXT takeover had had something to do with it, but this between Friday night, all the hype, then the fact that I was able to watch the AEW library, then SummerSlam, you had two big surprises at SummerSlam. Uh, Jeff, you're aware of what these surprises were without, Uh, uh, I know Brock Lesnar came out. Is that one of them? Yeah, so Brock. I haven't watched SummerSlam yet. I have to be honest. Yeah, and you probably won't. And the truth is, I don't know if you really need to. Uh, But you know, based off knowing what your tastes in wrestling are, I don't know if it's. And and look, it was in a good show, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, Brock Lesnar came out. He's got a beard. He's got a man bun now. Uh, apparently going to be some sort of baby face and the fact that he's going to be challenging Roman Reigns. The other was Becky Lynch. Now, this was an interesting story, Jeff, because they they came out. Bianca Belair has been getting the buildup now, I'll say, for the most part, this entire year. And she won the uh, World Women's World Championship at WrestleMania. She beat Sasha Banks. And she's been getting the push, the mega push ever since featured on everything and A to Z. So they bring back Sasha Banks two, three weeks ago. Uh, Sasha Banks, they have a tag match. Sasha Banks turns on Bianca Belair, setting up a great program for SummerSlam. Bianca Belair comes out and then they announced that Sasha Banks will not be there. She's not been medically cleared. None of this is explained to us exactly what happened to her or what's going on. She won't be there. Carmella comes out. Carmella is, uh, to even tell you who she is, it doesn't even matter who she is. <laughs> Carmella comes out and she's basically dispatched quickly. And all of a sudden, 
Becky Lynch's music hits and she comes out and the fucking place lost it. They exploded. She challenges Bianca Belair, who, again, they've they've spent six months building up as the greatest thing ever. They have a match. The last the match lasts less than a minute and it's two moves. And we have a new women's champion. But Bianca Belair seemingly done at this point. I did read this morning that the plan going forward is for Becky Lynch to be a heel. Now, I have to question that because there was one period where she was the biggest baby face in the company, regardless of who else was there. She was the biggest baby face in the company Uh, that probably cooled off a little bit. But at the same time, turning her heel doesn't make any sense. The only way I can figure any logic is everyone knows that she's married to Seth Rollins and he's, he's one of the top heels. But with Becky, what really made me stand out, made me think about this was, was this a decision made on the fly? And when I say that, and I don't know any of this, so maybe you've read or maybe not, first off, SummerSlam being on a Saturday instead of a Sunday. I can't figure out why. The second thing was, why put Becky in a position where she's beating the dominant champion and Bianca Belair is pushed as this great athlete and this really dominant champion and beating her in less than a minute with only two moves? It did say to me that I think this was done on the fly. And I think that they waited until they were sure that Punk was showing up and Punk shows up and they've got to be reactive in some form the other aspect was uh moving the show to saturday instead of sunday and i don't again i don't know why i don't know why they did it but maybe they didn't want to wait maybe in vince's head aew is getting all the press friday and saturday we'll get press on sunday because of SummerSlam, obviously and becky lynch will return and brock will return but what about saturday are we going to do that we need to put SummerSlam on on saturday and then we can get all that press back because we don't want them to get it. That's in my head. I don't know any of that to be accurate or true. But uh, the Becky Lynch thing clearly said to me she had not been in training. She had not been prepared for this moment. Otherwise, you would have had a match. You would have done something. It shouldn't have just been two moves. Am I wrong, Jeff? Am I right? Or do you not give a shit? Uh, I don't give a shit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I thought actually, I, I really, you know, because I haven't watched it, I don't know. I, I can't provide the context that you did. Uh, that's why you're uh, the co-host. That's why you make such a voluminous salary with the Arcadian yes. Vanguard yeah. podcast network. I don't know. Lou, does that mean I don't have to do it at the end of the show now? Just wondering. So my last question on the current wrestling product, and again, mm-hmm. something that came up in our conversation earlier. So now as we've discussed it, Barry, Tonight on Raw, do we see Walter? I'm going to say yes. The only thing I can see is you've got Bobby Lashley as an unstoppable beast. Does it make sense to bring Walter? Because that's what his gimmick is. If you're going to try to do anything else with Walter, you're making a huge fucking mistake, WWE. Walter needs to come out. He needs to interrupt a tag match between like uh, the Lucha House Party and some other guys that we don't really give a shit about. And he needs to fucking Terry Gordy their asses and level everybody out and doesn't need a manager. I love the fact that he, he doesn't need a manager in any form. He needs to make this a dominant debut. 
Fucking Walter, man. Unbelievable, Jeff. Unbelievable. I will tell you this as we do wrap this up. My son sent me a text last night immediately following the Dragonovich, uh, and I know I'm butchering that name, and Walter match. And you know what he said to me? He said, my God, is this a great time to be a wrestling fan or what? And the kid is 100% right, Jeff, because it is a great time. Check. So now we got the smooth transition, Barry, to this week in CWF history. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. We're going from today to the (laughs) Wayback Machine. As Barry says, in this date in 1928 in CWF. Did you just fall off your chair? So that's what it sounded like. I, your impression of me was so spot on. I literally just keeled right over. (laughs) This young kid wrestler named Cowboy Luttrell. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, Jeff. So we do. So I look, there are a few things I'm passionate about, Jeff. It's uh, it is uh, based off of this past weekend. I would say I'm passionate about really strong style wrestling. King's Road, maybe. King's Road. King's Road. I'm passionate about CWF, and Lord knows I do love food. And I had Anthony's coal-fired pizza last night, Jeff, and uh, it was spectacular. So we are. We're going to go way back on this date. This would be the 24th of August. The first match we're going to look at is 1965, Jeff. And why do I bring this match up? Barry, why do you bring this match up? Because it features an internet favorite, a guy that uh, kind of got his renaissance, if you will, working for Jim Cornette's Smoky Mountain, and a guy, Jeff, that we love a good chisel story about, Ron Wright. So Ron Wright was in was in CWF, I believe, twice. He was in 65, had to be young at that stage, and uh, he came back in the early 70s for a couple of weeks, but Ron Wright never got a great run in CWF. I don't know if he, you know, Eddie Graham looked at him and said, you're not right for this promotion, but uh, he did the job to Greg Peterson. I believe, didn't we just recently talk about Greg Peterson? No, we didn't, but please continue. You know what we talked about? We talked about Dennis Hall. It's like and the same thing. Go ahead. They're almost in a lot of ways. These two were almost identical in their careers, but, uh, but I like that. So, and that was the second match of the night, but I bring this up because I am going to look at a couple other matches on the lower end. 1976, this day, which would be August 24th, Fort Myers, Florida, Texas death match, hero Matsuda versus Tio Tio. Now, this was a localized program only taking place in Fort Myers. One of the things I loved about Fort Myers, Tallahassee, West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, in the 60s and the 70s, they would run their own programs regardless of whatever TV was pushing. So here on Matsuda and Tio Tio, Tio Tio, Jeff, we just talked about him recently, one of the Samoans, the original Samoans. Dandy uh, Jack Crawford. With Dandy Jack Crawford, correct. This was a uh, a localized feud that never saw the light of day out of Fort out of Fort Myers, but it, this was this this was always so exciting to me because these guys would give it their all, and I saw a couple of matches in Fort Myers uh, with localized feuds. It was uh, Pepper Gomez and Danny Little Bear against Dutch Mantel and John Foley, and they literally tore the house down. They would, you know, T.O. Tio wasn't a guy seeing main events anywhere else in the state at all. So given the opportunity, they always put forth amazing effort. 
the fact Hiro Matsuda is in a Texas death match, I have to see this. So that was exciting to me. Uh, but look at this card. How amazing is this? 824-77 Miami Beach. I was there. Good good chance Howard, Howard Brody. He wouldn't have been there. Howard Baum would have been there. Uh, Pete Letterberg was there for sure. Our old friend Bob McKeon, the shooter. Never been to a fan fest yet, Jeff, that cheap bastard. Uh, but look at this. Talking card. about wrestling fans that don't want to spend money. <coughs> Bob McKean. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but look at this uh, main event, WWWF title, superstar Billy Graham defending against Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Southern title, Ivan Koloff versus babyface Don Morocco. Florida TV title, Pedro Morales versus Pat Patterson. It's almost a WWWF card at one stage taking place. Only difference, these guys worked their asses off. Unlike I, I can't believe John McAdam didn't fly down from Witchies to see this card. <laughs> well, he had a date that night, Jeff. Well, he, he probably did. Yeah, if you, had, if you had the official John McAdam girlfriend calendar like I have, it would clearly tell you he had a date that night. So, uh, <laughs> so, so he couldn't make it. It was, he was missing out. Uh, here's an, a match that also caught my eye. First match of the night, uh, this date, 1986 in Orlando matchup of the future new breed, Chris champion against Sean Royal, Sean Royal, Jeff, top five guests on, on the podcast. Would you say, Oh, I don't think there's any question about that. <laughs> he oh, was no Missy Hyatt. So, you know, yeah, I, I, that is, we should invite Missy back on just to tell her side of the story. So <laughs> <laughs> she, she probably would accept and, 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 you know, and, and, and thank us for it. Uh, and I'm going to wrap up, look at this card, Jeff, St. Pete. We've talked about this. St. Pete was the MSG of the state of Florida. They would have a card once a month. It drew the highest crowds. They brought in outside talent. Everybody was on high alert. This was the card. Your main event this night, NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, Jack Briscoe defending against one of your personal favorites, Cowboy Bill Watts. Look at this undercard, though. Texas Bull Rope match, Dusty Rhodes versus Terry Funk. Southern title, Pac Song. The Korea from Korea, baby. Pac Song Nam. Paxong Nam, which the Nam was great because they added that as something uh, to tie in with Vietnam. Did you ever hear that story? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's all what I always thought it was. No, his name, there was no Paxong Nam ever. The guy was Paxong. And the first time they brought him into Florida, I want to say was 72. And I guess with uh, Vietnam being recently wrapped up or in the process of being wrapped up, uh, they decided let's make him a really evil heel and we'll put Nam on the end of it. In, in later years, notice he dropped that. It was just Pac Song. That yeah. was crazy. He defended against Jerry Briscoe. Six-man elimination tag match. Mike and Eddie Graham with their partner, Tony, Tony Charles. Tony Charles, Jeff. Another guy, I brought up Cyclone Negro a couple weeks back about just a guy that's kind of forgotten by, uh, by Latter-day Wrestling history. Tony Charles was out of this world fantastic and never really got his due. They're facing the Hollywood Blondes and their manager, Sir Oliver Humperdinck. North American title, The Bullet. Bob Armstrong recently passed away a few months back against Bobby Duncan, plus four other matches. So you've got one, two, you've got nine matches. And I just read off those four, which were fantastic. 
I imagine the other four were just as good. What, Jeff, what was it? What was that year again? I'm sorry. That was 1974. Well, the reason I asked that is because I know I think it was in the 73, 74 uh, time frame that the After Magazines uh, had a cover of the Armstrong Duncan feud when it was in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, and it was just they were bloodbath pretty much on a nightly basis. Yeah. And, you know, so Bob, Bob Duncan, Bobby Duncan is a guy that uh, I would like to apologize. He's, I'm sure he's listening. I'm sure he listens every week. But years ago, Bobby Duncan always struck me as and I think we've we've mentioned it, a poor man's Stan Hansen. And that is so unfair to his career. And I think a lot of what happened to him. Bobby Duncan was uh, with Stan Hansen. Hey, he was older too at that point. By the time he Bobby started in the '60s, but by the '80s, Duncan was kind of phasing out. He went back to Texas. I uh, I think he finished up around '85, '86, working as the mummy for uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling. And he was a guy, another guy, forgotten by history until his son came along. Bobby Duncan Jr., rest in peace. Uh, but Bobby Duncan was really good, Jeff. And I I went back, I don't know, four or five years ago, and I watched a bunch of his matches on YouTube. Bobby Duncan was really good. And uh, for me to refer to him as a poor man, Stan Hansen, it's not only insulting, but it's also incorrect because he wasn't. He was his own guy. He did a great job. He was a top heel. Uh, I have heard he wants nothing to do with professional wrestling. Nobody can tell you anything about him over the last 20 years other than supposedly working at some sort of car dealership in uh, in Texas somewhere. But Bobby Duncan would have to be in his mid to late 70s at this point. Uh, I've heard that he never recovered over the loss of his son, Bobby Duncan Jr., part of the West Texas Rednecks and WCW uh, I believe died of some sort of a drug overdose. And, uh, but there's a guy that I've been trying to find for years to, you know, whether it's a conversation, a fan fest, or even to get him on our podcast, I'd love to be able to bring Bobby Duncan out of hiding. But, uh, again, everything I've heard, he had a, gr- a great run in the AWA too, he, you know, but there, so there you go. I'm insulting this guy. He had a great run in the WWF. He had great yeah. runs in Florida. He had a great run in Georgia. He had a great run. He had a great run wherever he went. And he deserves he deserves better. I know that at some point in his career, I remember reading that he had had problems with his knees. Maybe going back as far as his football days, but the right. knees really became an issue the further in his career that he went uh, to where uh, – you know, I believe I was just looking him up real quick. And his last match, which is like on an independent show somewhere, and, uh, was in 1986. But I, I want to say like 81, 82-ish, he was like one half of the AWA Tag Champs with Blackjack Lanza or at least yes. somewhere. Uh, you know, yeah. some, uh, maybe I'm, I'm I'm going off of memory and I'm not the AWA historian. No, you're right, though. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Uh, but no, I, I do remember that his knees had given him a lot of trouble towards the latter part of his career. So uh, I'll yeah, tell you but, a funny story about Bobby Duncan. So funny, haha, funny, unusual. <sighs> we'll be funny. the judge of that. We'll be. The judge of that. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you, sir? There you go. So we went to a St. Pete card and this would have been 78 probably. And it was myself, Pete Letterberg and Brian Berkowitz. And we walk into a Denny's after the show 
and Bobby Duncan is there. He's by himself too. And he's got a bowl of chili and we're sitting, <laughs> we're sitting at a table. I'm like 15 years old at this point, maybe 14. So this is great for me. You know, this is like my entire world is taking place right there. And we're sitting at a table where we can watch Bobby Duncan and they drop off a bowl of chili, which is great because this is around midnight and you've got this big Texan eating a bowl of chili at Denny's, right? They're known for their chilies, boy. They're, they must be. He does something that I don't think I have ever seen done before or after, but I started doing it subconsciously, I guess, to, to mimic Bobby Duncan. He unscrews the cap of the pepper shaker and literally pours the whole container into the chili. Oh, Stirs it up and eats it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my is right. Crazy, right? Uh, I, I'm guessing about three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. He, he was like, I think I need to hit the restroom there. Uh, but wow, whole thing of, of pepper. That's kind of amazing. Okay. Now we are winding around the turn and we're heading for home on this episode, Barry, but both you and I wanted to talk about today being the anniversary uh, today that we're recording uh, the anniversary of hurricane Andrew and the just, uh, you know, just to put it in context, because it's been so long ago, uh, what Hurricane Katrina did uh, and the devastation that it, you know, that it hit Louise, not just New Orleans, but Louisiana and Mississippi and, you know, all those areas. That's what Hurricane Andrew did to uh, to South Florida. So uh, we'll both share our memories. Barry, why don't you tell the folks what you remember about uh, that just awful, awful experience? Yeah, it was traumatic, and I uh, I'll break a little kayfabe on this one, Jeff. So, I uh, I also I was living in New York City when 9/11 took place, and that that's something I don't really talk about. Uh, I had a newborn child, and we had to go through it. And uh, I think the reason I make the comparison, it's going to be two reasons. One was when you when you were in the New York City area after 9/11 you lived with 9/11 on a daily basis and and to some degree you still might but uh we were in New York for up to 2 years after 9/11 took place before we left and you lived with it on a daily basis it was also very true of hurricane andrew if you lived in south florida it was the lead story on the news six months, eight months later. This is not an event that occurred. And then a week later, life had just moved on. This was such a devastating, uh, you know, natural disaster to South Florida. And sadly, as you know, uh, it, it wound up hitting in an area that it was not predicted to hit. And whether Wobbled those people, at the last minute, right. And whether those people were not as prepared, uh, you know, it, it, we, we, well, I guess we'll never know. I would assume some weren't, there are videos out there, but it really, it, it comes down to that one development and there was a couple and it's, you can look at it and the houses are flattened just like pancakes. And, uh, I, was it, it was something walk in, country. uh, thank you country walk. And it, it was, uh, it was a devastating thing and it, it was traumatic and it was traumatic because here we are, we live in the U.S., and much like anybody probably listening to our podcast, you can get in your car right now, and you can probably be at a grocery store in five to ten minutes. I can, I can walk to a CVS from where I am. I can be at a grocery store uh, walking in ten minutes. 
uh, it's a big deal. But they're showing all these videos of people fighting each other to get gallons of water that are being dispersed by a National Guard truck. And then you realize that, you know, people are are fighting and, and literally men fighting women and old people fighting old people, physically fighting to get a gallon of water. And this is happening in Miami, in our own city. It was a traumatic and really devastating thing that I don't think I don't I didn't realize the impact it had on me until probably years later. And I, I mentioned this to you earlier. We knew that it was coming, but I didn't really realize how soon it was coming until about 24 hours before I had just gotten out of the Lollapalooza concert, which was in Miami Beach, which was that that's a that's a whole episode of itself right there. And when I got out, uh, the lines at the gas station were about 60 cars deep and I didn't understand it. I turn on the radio and then I you know, that's something that always occurs. Whenever there's a hurricane, your grocery stores will be depleted and your gas stations are going to be emptied. It just happened. So I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a very scary experience. I also had to take care of my father at that stage. And my mother was in Ohio at the time. Uh, and she was staying with, I guess, her her parents. She was with relatives. And my dad was in a wheelchair. My dad had been very sick for years and he was staying with me. We lived, uh, we were living on a condo on Miami Beach. We had to evacuate and he wound up staying with me at a friend's apartment. And, you know, you would have thought the world was ending. Like even we're 30 miles inland, 20 miles inland, whatever it was. And you still would have thought the world was ending. That was arguably the most ferocious and vicious storm I have ever encountered in my life, Jeff. Um. Yeah, there's uh, so much uh, context to this story. First of all, uh, when the storm uh, was approaching, you, one thing about South Florida before Hurricane Andrew is there was always a belief it's going to go somewhere else uh, because South Florida, I believe, had not been uh, had landfall with a a storm above like a Cat One since like. 1969 or or maybe even maybe 65. So you're talking like maybe 20, 25 years since the last hurricane had hit and made landfall there. So, you know, your response is kind of predictable, like, ah, it's going to end up turning north or it'll go south. Of, you know, that that's what you would always do. And I can remember I believe it was Hurricane, I want to say David, around 1979, that Correct. literally was like 15 miles off the coast of South Florida and suddenly just headed north. Yep. And we had put we had put up the boards and all that kind of stuff. And this is just to show you the difference in what people did back then. Of course, when a hurricane was coming, you put masking tape on your windows, <laughs> which is just the most a stupid thing you could ever could. The theory being, well, if the glass blows in, it's going to stay in one piece. It's not going to shatter. That was the the brilliant philosophy that had been uh, put upon us. Okay, so at the time this happens, I was married to the second Mrs. Bowdrin, who, much like my daughter's name was Kelly, uh, Mrs. Bowdrin number two was named Kelly. And we lived 
in a greater metropolitan Davie, Florida, um, Barry. And was this, um, was this the second the second floor apartment? Yes, it was. I was there once. Okay, yeah. And uh, fond memories of the second Mrs. Bowden Bear. I, I just remember. I remember being there once, yeah. but it was a second floor apartment. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And um, we like lived on a uh, like a canal and stuff like that. And I remember across the street from us, uh, there was a section, uh, you know, like maybe five acres or so uh, of woods. Uh, it just essentially, if you know South Florida, if it hasn't been developed yet, that's the reason why the woods are still there, uh, because eventually somebody will come and mow the fucking thing down and and uh, build more houses or shopping centers or something. But I remember that because, you know, my dog that we had at the time was an Australian Shepherd, uh, which, by the way, Barry, amazing, amazing dogs, uh, Australian Shepherds. I still remember my dog, Misty, that my wife and I had. And I used to take Misty across into the woods and, you know, I'd take her off the leash, let her run around and and, you know. And do stuff, get a little exercise, and then I call her and we go back over. And when the storm was coming, the worst thing is I, I've never lived through an earthquake. Uh, I've never lived through a tornado. I, I can't even imagine what those experiences must be like. But the thing about the hurricane is, as Tom Petty once said, the waiting is the hardest part. Because if you know this thing is coming, it just doesn't just happen. You have to prepare for it, and then you sit and you fucking wait. And it's like, okay, okay, is the thing coming? Is the thing coming? Come. And originally, Hurricane Andrew was heading straight for Broward friggin' County, okay? And then what happened is that the last minute, it veers south, and I think Homestead or Cutler Ridge, uh, yeah. which is out in west, the western part of Miami, um, that was ground zero for Hurricane Andrew. And when it hits, uh, so here's a couple, of, you lose power, uh, I don't mean for a couple hours, you usually lose it for like a week, okay? Yeah. And when the hurricane's done and it's moved past you, you go outside and there's like a nice little breeze going on and you're like, oh, it's, it's actually kind of nice out. And then it gets hot. And I don't mean, I mean like, Africa fucking hot and humid and sticky and you got no fucking air conditioning and you're absolutely miserable. Okay. Well, then you decide, well, let's take a look at the damage that we have around here. Okay. And my wife and I, we had sliding doors as pretty much 90% of the people in South Florida at the time did. And we'd put the masking tape on the sliding doors and we closed the blinds. That was our, that was our by God security. <laughs> We're going to close the blinds, so if we don't see what's happening, it won't hurt us. You'll be fine, I, sure. Yes. I remember at one point I looked outside, and the rain was horizontal, going uh, going down like uh, it wasn't falling vertically. It was like going east to west, and it wasn't dropping you know, from the sky to the ground. It was like going west, and it was like in a horizontal fashion. And I remember thinking – Wow, that's really fucking weird. I've never seen rain do that before. And so my wife and I and our dog set out this whole night, completely freaked out because, you know, the the condo, the the windows would shake. And thank God nothing, you know, crashed in. But the next morning when we got up and the sun had come out and I remember we were opening our blinds and then we went into our bedroom and we opened the blinds for our bedroom and we had a tree outside of our condo. And the tree had been knocked over and this huge branch had fallen with the tree. And it was about 
six inches from going through our bedroom window. And it would have come through, crashed into our bedroom window, and I don't know what the hell would have happened to us. But it was just amazing. Uh, somebody or something was watching over us that night to keep that thing from coming through our window. It was super, super friggin' scary. And then, of course, you walk and you see the damage. The, the woods where I would take my dog was gone. It had been absolutely fucking leveled. And uh, it was just like, you know, uh, I remember when um, when I lived in Coral Springs with my wife, Kim, and our family in 2005 and Hurricane Charlie came through. We had a line on our road of uh, like pine trees and uh, every single pine tree had been knocked down and like literally just like somebody come by with a, a saw and chopped them all like about six feet. And every tree was down. And I remember uh, saying that, man, the trees are gone. And this whole section of five acres or so of woods was just completely fucking leveled. And a couple of days go by and you start getting bored and, you know, you're, you know, the electricity still hasn't come back on, obviously. And, and so you're getting like, well, what do we want to do? And we start hearing reports. And of course that's back when people still used to get newspapers. Uh, you know, oh. people don't do that anymore. I don't think Barry. And uh, there was no social media to get your info. And so we had begun hearing about the devastation that had uh, hit Homestead and Cutler Ridge and areas like that and Country Walk. So we decided let's go for uh, let's go for a ride and, and see how everything looks. Okay. And my wife and I drove down to Homestead and we saw what can only be described. And I'm I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but I can imagine that it's what Hiroshima or Nagasaki looked like after the bomb hit. Because I mean, it was just you you couldn't tell which street was which street. You didn't, you know, all the houses, if you had a house that, you know, you, you'd see 25 houses that were completely leveled and there was one that seemingly didn't really get hit. So like you know, when you see the, the footage in Oklahoma when the tornadoes go through and you see an entire residential community devastated and then there's like one or two houses that somehow it missed. And you're like, why did these two houses not get affected, you know? And we're driving through and we actually saw people sitting out on their front porch with shotguns in their hand and a sign spray painted saying looters will be shot uh, because, uh, you know, these kind of events brings out the real scumbags of the human race and people prey on people's misery and they try to steal things from people. Uh, people would come and pretend to be insurance agents and scam people out of money, out of their life savings and just absolutely horrifying and holy shit. It's something God, Barry, it's been close to 30 years now and I'll never forget that. And That's you know, 29 that, years, right? Yeah. It's, it's that what I saw and that drive through, you know, Kelly and I didn't know what to say to one another because this was like, you know, we had been married like maybe a year at that point and we were sitting there thinking this could have been us very easily if that wobble uh, hadn't happened, you know, and, and, you know, if you, if you go out on YouTube and you look up stuff for hurricane Andrew, it, you'll see videos of people literally in their bathtubs hiding. And when they come out of their house, their house is gone, you know, cause they tell you go to the room in your house that doesn't have any windows that, you know, has some protection. So people would go into their bathrooms and literally an entire family would, uh, get in the bathtub together. And, you know, 
what's interesting uh, in a horrible, horrible way, uh, I talked about how this brings out the worst in people. Because South Florida was so not used to hurricanes and had the belief that this, oh, this is going to go north or south or whatever, it's not going to hit us. I volunteered at a uh, at a place a couple of uh, weeks after that. You know, you, you feel like you need to do something. And I went to a place uh, in Davie that was taking in uh, dogs uh, and pets that had been abandoned uh, because of the hurricane. And, you know, people people left their dogs outside. Yeah, 150 fucking mile an hour winds and you leave your dog outside. Ah, they'll take care of this. Yeah, they'll take care of this. That upsets and, me. Yeah, and even worse than that, Barry, if you're going to do that, you're a huge fucking scumbag. But next yeah. level to that, is there are people that left their dogs on a, on a chain in the backyard. Like, really? You know, if, if you're going to be that big a fucking asshole, at least let your dog go and, and you know, and, and let them fin- try to fend for themselves. You're chaining your dog up in the backyard. And, and, you know, I heard stories about people finding dead animals, you know, tied up in the backyard because people thought, ah, oh, this isn't going to, you know. And that is how Andrew completely changed South Florida. Because now, and Barry was absolutely right, when there's even a hint that there's a, you know, that a hurricane might hit, I, I can tell you, uh, oh, God, I'm trying to think now how many years ago it was, Barry, uh, maybe less than five years ago, there was a hurricane that was coming. My daughter was already up here, and they were talking about it being a Category 5 hurricane. And Kim and I were like, nope, nope, we're not fucking staying here. Uh, we are going. and we packed our dogs up in our cars and the panic had already set into South Florida. You couldn't find gas anywhere in South Florida, anywhere. We drove, we left at 1230 in the night, headed North because we decided we were going to go up to, to where we live now in, in Georgia. And we could not find gas available, not, not open, not lines. I mean, not available because everyone had run out of gas until we got to Ormond Beach. Uh, do you know where Ormond Beach is, Bear? I certainly do. Okay. That's how far away from South Florida. No, Ormond Beach is like north of Daytona. Okay. So we were like a good four four hours uh, north of South Florida before we could find any, any gas available to us. And when we found it, it was like 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. And we were like, holy shit, I can't believe we're – because we were worried what's going to happen if we run out of gas and we're on I-95. And I heard stories because people had started evacuating and they went to Turnpike. And in the panic that ensued, the traffic jam that that happened, the, you know, there were people that were like abandoning their cars to get away. Uh, I knew a guy that was an attorney in Broward County who packed his whole family up and he had an older dog in the car and and some pets thrive in, in cars, you know, uh, we're lucky, Barry, you and I, our dogs love being in the car. Uh, but this guy had an older dog. I want to say like a, a lab or a golden retriever that was maybe like 15 years old. And the stress of what was going on with, with the, you know, not just, not just traveling, but the fact you're stop and go, you know, for literally like 10 hours, it, his dog died. Oh, because of the stress of, of all this, you know, and sure. it's nothing to fuck around with. And the that that waiting 
for for the hurricane. Now, that's part of the reason why I moved out of South Florida because not just you know the 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 gas lines. Barry was right. You know the the shit that goes on. People fighting over a gallon of gas. People fighting over water. People fighting over plywood. You know, and that shit. After 40 stinking years being in Broward County, it stressed the fuck out of me. And that's part of why my wife and I moved. We just didn't need that, you know. And uh, when I start seeing stuff about, uh, you know, hurricanes are forming out in the Caribbean and uh, they're projecting it to go this way. And there's like 15 fucking models. And there's, you know, 14 of them having going out to sea. And then there's one that always has their eye on South Florida. And you're like going, ah, I hope they don't have to deal with that. So, yeah, Hurricane Andrew. Wow. Yeah, not a fond memory bear. No, it really was, too. And a couple of uh, just to touch on a couple of things that you brought up. So when you the day after a hurricane, usually you're right. It's beautiful out. Like the sun is out, the birds are chirping. I, you know, whether the hurricane comes and it blows, you know, everything away. But uh, the day after is usually gorgeous. The danger that exists is all these fucking power lines are down. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you step outside, you literally are, you're risking your life. The second thing to touch on, and this is going to be a bit of a rant and a bit, this is, uh, this is not really hurricane related, Jeff. But it is something that you just touched on the, about the whole dog issue, because that really upsets me to hear that. And you're right, because there was an article and I, I guess Miami Herald or Sun Sentinel, one of the two. But I remember the article that somebody wrote about the amount of dead animals that they were finding, meaning that people had left their fucking dogs out that you hadn't brought a dog into the house in the middle of these horrible storms. That is a crime and it should be a crime. but. Uh, I've been going with the lovely Zoe to, uh, a local animal shelter. And one of the things that we do is whenever we go out and either have lunch or dinner, we always go to the animal shelter so we can spend time with the dogs. And it's something she likes. It's something I like. I'm not in a position where I can adopt another dog, but at the same time, if I can bring a tiny bit of joy to a dog that is cramped up and caged, I'm going to do it because it makes me feel good. But I got to tell you what I'm really pissed about, Jeff, the amount of owner surrendered dogs in this facility. And I'm not talking six months and I can't, I can't housebreaking. I'm talking seven-year-old dogs who are now having to live in cages and crates because their owner has moved to an apartment where they can't have dogs. Or maybe my new girlfriend doesn't like dogs, whatever it is. Other than death, I can't, th or hospitalization, I can't think of any fucking legitimate reason you would adopt a dog, keep a dog for upwards of five to 10 years, and then decide, oh, lifestyle change for me. I'm going to give the dog up and it's going to go sit in a fucking cage where it's going to be freaked out for the rest of its natural born life, unless it gets adopted. And as we all know, Jeff, people love adopting eight year old dogs that there's got to be, there's something's got to be fucking done about that. Cause I got to tell you, I walk out of there and it's a mix of emotions. On the one hand, I'm very sad. Having seen these dogs, these dogs are frightened, Jeff, these dogs, you walk in and if there's, you know, 40 cages in a row, 39 of those cages, those dogs are barking like they're completely insane. 
And you've got this one dog that's always scared and shaking to the point that they can't contain themselves. And this is usually an owner surrender dog. And I get owner surrender because I get at some point, if you're a single person and you're hospitalized and maybe it's terminal cancer, whatever it is, maybe there is a legitimate reason. But I also know if I'm seeing 30 fucking dogs that are between the ages of five and 10 with an owner surrender, that it's people being horrifically selfish and not giving a shit. And I got to tell you, it makes me really fucking angry. Uh, I would tell you if, if uh, my wife and I lost her home uh, and had to live in our car, I, I would not give up our dog. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would, I would live in the car with, uh, with our dogs. Yep. And, you know, you were, you were talking about uh, the dogs in the kennel. And, and, you know, just as a reminder, I think I've told this story before, when we went and adopted a Gunny, Gunny would not come to the front of the kennel run. He was back in the back uh, on his little bed like afraid to come and and see as I was calling him, I'm going, come here, come here, show yourself off to me so I can think about, you know, adopting you. And, and he was too scared to do it and he wouldn't do anything. And my daughter, my daughter who was with me was like, what do you think about that one? I go, well, he's not coming out. I, you know, and my wife sat in the car because my wife cannot go in those places because she feels like I, I can't see those dogs that sad because I want to adopt every one of them. And yeah. I get that. You know, and so my my daughter and I were going in there and then I, you know, as I said, I did the Scooby-Doo thing with Gunny. I walked past and then something maybe turned back and I looked at him and I went, oh, and he, his ears perked up and he got up and started walking towards me. And so we took him out on the leash, did a little walk with him, see how he did on the leash. Uh, he was fine. And, you know, the funny thing is at this particular uh, place we, we got him from. One of the things they had on the grounds was they had ducks uh, in like a little uh, a pond area. And one of the things that they would do was they would tell people, walk your dogs around, not not like have them go after the ducks, but near that area to see if they're going to be aggressive to the other animals, you know, and they, they want to see if the dog's going to go. And we we took one dog, you know, on a leash that kind of made a move to going towards the ducks. And Gunny kind of just like looked at him on, eh, you know, and went on his merry way. And that was part of another thing that made him attractive to us as potential owners. And, you know, what Barry said is, is absolutely accurate. Getting a dog, even, you know, I, I've said it before, Barry, I'm not a cat guy. We, you know, uh, my wife loves cats. My kids love cat. You know, I'm a dog guy. Okay. But whether you have a dog, a cat, a ferret, I don't care what the fuck you have. Getting a pet is a lifetime commitment for that pet. You know, I, I look upon it, you know, one of the things I've thought of, Barry, is I'm exiting my 50s here in a few months. Oh, boy. And, you know, I've thought about when something happens to Gunny and Molly, our two dogs, am I going to be in a position where I can make a 15-year commitment to the next animal we get, you know? And because that's exactly what you're looking at, because the average dog, you know, if you get a friggin' Great Dane, no, they're not going to live 15 years. But if you get the average dog, it's going to live 12 to 15 years. And you have to be able to make that sort of commitment to your animal. You know, I mean, Barry, for God's sakes, separated from his wife and had to get his own apartment. Guess what? He knew Ozzy was coming with them. And, that was, and Jeff, that to that point. How many apartments did I look at that wouldn't allow Absolutely, dogs? Absolutely, yeah. And 
it, this is all this will because I take Ozzy with me everywhere. And I'll talk about that in a second. I had to pay a $350 non-refundable deposit just to have Ozzy here. And then I have to pay an additional $35 per month to have Ozzy here on top of Ozzy's already astronomical food bill and his vet. So to what you're saying, if there's a commitment of 15 years, 100%, there's also a financial commitment that, you know, dogs aren't cheap. There's no. no there, you know, between uh, flea and tick medicine and heartworm, food, vet bill, all of it, none of this is going to be cheap. Not everybody should get a dog, Jeff. So I'll tell you something just to end this particular uh, part of the show on a, sure. on a relatively lighter note. Okay. Uh, I, I discussed last episode about uh, taking the gabaca- uh, gabapentin uh, for my neuropathy in my feet. So Gunny, <laughs> as he's getting older, Gunny takes gabapentin. Okay. Wow. Because when he had his issue, uh, I want to say with like his liver uh, a few years back, one of the prescriptions that he takes is gabapentin. We uh, we get our gabapentin from Gunny (laughs) from Kroger's Pharmacy where my son works. So I went, I took my son to work today and he goes in and as he's going into work, he stops at the register. The pharmacist comes over and he goes, yeah, my dad's here to get the medication. And the the pharmacist finally goes, oh, okay, what's the name? And he goes, Uh, Gunny Bowdrin. <laughs> Gunny Bowdrin is in their system with the gabapentin. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, yeah. So, gabapentin. Uh, gabapentin sounds like a Russian girl that John McAdam would have dated, right? <laughs> I think it was like, 11th grade. 11th grade. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, on that note, John uh, McAdam's dating history, I will tell you that on behalf of I am Jeff Bowdrin. They call me the Booker. And for our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Frigging Network. Take it home.